Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show, and today we're going to be discussing Paramahansa Yogananda and his book, The Autobiography of a Yogi. I feel very fortunate to have my guest join me, Phil Goldberg. Since Phil has written two books relevant to this topic, uh, the first was American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, and the second was a biography of Yogananda entitled The Life of Yogananda. Phil Goldberg has been studying the world's spiritual traditions for more than 50 years. He is an illuminating and entertaining public speaker and workshop leader, a spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and an ordained interfaith minister. Phil is the author or co-author of numerous books in addition to others uh, besides the ones that I mentioned. A few others are Road Signs on the Spiritual Path and Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. Phil hosts the popular Spirit Matters podcast. His website is philipgoldberg.com and Philip is with one L, P-H-I-L-I-P, goldberg.com. You can also follow him on social media on Facebook at Philip Goldberg Author. You can also find his podcast Spirit Matters at mindbodyspirit.fm. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Phil Goldberg. I'm really delighted you could join me on the podcast to uh, talk about Yogananda and his autobiography. Great to be with you again, Laurel. So before we dive into our conversation about Paramahansa Yogananda, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of just being right here, right now. So let's begin by bringing our attention to our bodies, just feeling our body in space. Whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking, driving. And now turning our attention to the surfaces that support our weight. Feeling our feet. Feeling the part of our weight that might be supported in a chair or on a cushion. And then turning our attention to the breath. And just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, noticing how that temperature has warmed as the air has passed through our body. And this keeping our focus on the breath. Here's something to contemplate <clears throat> from Roy Eugene Davis's book, Paramahansa Yogananda as I Knew Him. Mr. Davis is describing one of his last meetings with his guru, his teacher, Yogananda. He writes, leaning close, he said, don't allow yourself to be too concerned 
about what others do or don't do. Don't look back. Don't look to the left or to the right. Look straight ahead to the goal and go all the way in this lifetime. You can do it. Sri Yukteswar used to say, the boat that carries souls across the river of delusion is ready to depart. Who will go? Who will go? If no one goes, I will go. Yogananda closed by saying, you must be like that. Oh. Once again, Phil Goldberg, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Before we launch into our discussion of Paramahansa Yogananda's book, The Autobiography of a Yogi, I wanted to ask you about how it is that you came to write these two important books about the teachings of Indian spiritual philosophy. As I mentioned, American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, and then a biography of Yogananda, the life of Yogananda, the story of the yogi who became the first modern guru. So. It seems that India has really been a focus for you in your writing. <laughs> yeah, um, and my life. You know, it's it started uh, in the, in the '60s when I was uh, you know, part of a generation of seekers um, who were dissatisfied with uh, conventional wisdom and conventional ways of life, and were searching for alternatives and. Uh, healthy ways and unhealthy ways back back then. And um, somewhere along the line, uh, someone like me who had never given religion a thought, because you know, I was raised by atheists and had no interest in such things, um, suddenly in the process of seeking and seeking answers to big questions and looking for truth, the teachings that were born in India came my way uh, at first through uh, Western writers that I uh, respected, like Emerson and Thoreau and uh, J.D. Salinger and Joseph Campbell and all these other eminences. Um, and then I went directly to the sources, you know, Bhagavad Gita and Upanishads, and I was just devouring that stuff and at a certain point autobiography of a yogi became part of the um, library of influence influential books and so i took up meditation and uh, you know it just dove into integrating the teachings of the yoga tradition into my life um, and that became a, the centerpiece of my life uh, as a, uh, in my own spiritual life. And that at a certain point, uh, when I turned to writing professionally, um, actually, I had the thought of writing a book like American Veda in the 80s. Mm. I, it, it started to be uh, obvious to me that these uh, teachings that had come from India uh, had not only uh, changed the lives of people like me, and you know, by then, many of my friends, but had had a bigger impact on the culture than was generally appreciated overall. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but I was ahead of my time in the 80s and no publishers were interested in it. Oh. But 20 or so years later, when the uh, impact of India's spiritual heritage on the spiritual landscape of America became more and more obvious, uh, then publishers stepped up to the plate and I wrote American Veda, which essentially covers 200 years of history, or more than that now, of how um, these teachings filtered into the culture of America, into the awareness of people, and grew exponentially, uh, especially when transportation and communication technology improved and gurus were able to come here, swamis were able to come and all that. And of course, Yogananda is a key, a key player in all that. He, right. he, he followed on the heels of uh, his predecessor, Swami Vivekananda, and you know came here in the 20s and stayed here till his passing in 1952, prior to the wave of gurus who came in the 60s and 70s who were so influential, uh, who followed on his heels. And they all fed on one another and influenced one another. So that's what I wrote about in American Veda and the, the obvious and, and uh, subtle ways uh, is the spiritual teachings of India had influenced so many lives and, and the culture as a whole. In writing that, I profiled the key uh emissaries from India who had come here, and um, Yogananda being one of the more important ones, if not the most important one in, in terms of influence, uh, had a chapter of his own. And in researching that, uh, I became fascinated with his story, his life, his human story, um, as in not just what he taught and who he affected, which is, of course, the more important thing. But um, and then I had, you know, 20, 25 pages to devote to it. And I felt uh, that wasn't enough mm. because it was so much. It, his story was so interesting. Uh, and I should add that we know a lot more about his personal life, his personal human story than we do about many uh, renunciates and swamis, gurus, Buddhist monks, and all that, because uh, he chose to speak about it and to write about it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was fascinated by the human story, um, and especially because um, he was the first of the gurus uh, to come here and make America his home. And he did so at a, you know, a very interesting time in our history, the 20s, the 30s, the, the World War II years, etc. Um, and so his story is unique, his, and, and I wanted to uh, explore it. And I felt uh, I, I didn't have enough space in American Veda. And so after it was published, I thought, well, what do I want to do now? And I thought, well, some of the teachers who I wrote about in a few pages deserve better, bigger treatment. And of those, uh, Yogananda might be the best candidate for a variety of reasons. 
So I reread, for I don't know how, you know how many times I've read it now, the autobiography of a yogi, because the first thought was, well, why write a biography of a person who's famous for having written his autobiography? Right. But I, and I had a feeling, I think he left out a lot, because, right. you know, I had done my research for, for my book, and, and I said, but I need to be sure of that. So I actually read, went back into the autobiography of Yogi and did a page count and realized that less than 10% of the book was about his life after he comes to America. Right. Which is which is more than half his life and the the adult portion of his life where he right. he became the famous yogi. Um and then I I realized um there were passages like, you know, and four years went by in Boston. And I thought, oh no, that's you know, what happened during those four years? What you know, what more is there to say? Right. Um and 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 that 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 was common. And I realized how much of what we call an autobiography was really about other people. Right. And philosophy and, you know, India and history and all that, and not about his personal life. So I felt there were gaps that had to be filled. And I said, well, I'm qualified. I should do it. And so I went back and uh, started researching, you know, even more deeply his life. So yeah. that's how they, they came about. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I that is one of the things I really appreciated about your about your book, about your biography of Yogananda, is it does fill in and make obvious so many of the holes that there were in out of which I hadn't I hadn't actually really thought about that, but in his years after 1920, when he came to the United States, like you said, it's very minimal details on that, except for his one trip back to India, which right. he covers in some, right. in some detail. And there was, there was stuff about that that he doesn't have in the autobiography, but I had access to a lot of the letters he wrote from India back to the States and essays he wrote and things like that to fill in even more about that chapter. Yeah. yeah. So just saying a little bit more about this book that we're going to be discussing. So Paramahansa Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi, was first published in 1946. And it's been translated, according to Wikipedia at least, into over 50 languages. Uh, it's acclaimed as a spiritual classic and was listed as one of the 100 most important spiritual books of the 20th century by a panel of theologians and luminaries convened by HarperCollins Publishers. And there's also a book called 50 Spiritual Classics in which it appears. So there's some agreement that it's a spiritual classic. Yogacharya O'Brien really always encourages any new students at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment to begin their studies by reading this book. And I know from my own conversations with friends and just people that I've run into, it's really a common thing that people have run into in their you know, spiritual search. What do you think it is about Paramahansa Yogananda's life and his book, The Autobiography of a Yogi, that is so captivating that had that captivated America's interest while he was here. Uh, and then obviously, you know, since now he's been gone for what 70 years, um, that has continued to make it such an influential book for, for so many people. Yeah. And, you know, it was only, uh, it only was in print for six years when he passed. 
And so um, it's had this life. And he knew it would. He knew this was going to be his legacy. And um, and you're right. It, it's a classic. And um, it's influenced literally millions of lives. Um, when I was researching American Veda and in my on my podcast and all, you know, I've interviewed hundreds of people about their spiritual lives. And when I asked them about the origins, the you know, uh, if they had if if their spiritual life has anything to do with uh, yoga, Hinduism, uh, the the whole Vedic tradition, uh, if there's an Eastern influence on their lives if they mention an influential book it's more often than not autobiography of a yogi kept coming up all the time they didn't necessarily become devotees or disciples of yogananda or you know study his teachings or uh i'm one of those people i was already on my spiritual path i was meditating every day and going on retreats when I first read Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, so I never became a disciple. Uh, and But it had a big influence on me. And uh, to this day, it does. I teach courses. You know, I teach uh, courses at, at Hindu University of America, one of which we go through the autobiography over 10 weeks and study it deeply. And I bring in stuff that I've learned that's not in the book. <laughs> but um, and every time I do, every time I go th- over the book again, because I'm teaching about it, I learn something new and I see something new. Um, it was fascinating. The number of people who uh, often people I didn't expect. Yeah. You know, Christian mystics and, you know, people like that who have been influenced by the book. It, it's it's a unique book. There's a lot of spiritual memoirs, um, but very few are written by renunciates, mm. by yogis, real, you know, genuine yogis. They don't tend to write about themselves. Right. Uh, Swami Vivekananda was very prolific. There are many guru figures who are very prolific. They write about philosophy. They write about applied yoga. They write about Vedanta, whatever it is. They don't write about themselves. Right. And 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 so that's one of the things that makes it unique. And it's it, it's among spiritual memoirs and among even, you know, there's many books written about swamis and gurus and spiritual holy people. Um, but there's a unique combination in the 500 or so pages of the autobiography of a compelling personal story from birth to middle age of a, a spiritual seeker who becomes a yogi, who has a guru, who lives, a you know, in many ways, a traditional spiritual life in India. Uh, so it's a compelling story about a human being. It also has com- fascinating portraits of other people, <laughs> yeah. other spiritual luminaries and interesting people, scientists and scholars and so forth. 
It also gives you uh, a glimpse of uh, an intimate look at India, India and Indian life in the first part of the 20th century. Yeah, well, in, and the tail end of the 19th century because Yogananda was born in 1893. Um, so, you know, for people, it, there's a bit of that exotic feeling of what life was like in India, a bit of Indian history and Indian culture and Indian family life and so forth. So there's also that. And I'm convinced that if you were to go into autobiography of a yogi and extract the passages and pages where he discourses about Indian philosophy, about yoga philosophy and, and uh, all the, the various uh, offshoots of what we in the West think of as Hinduism or the Vedic tradition, you would end up with a very good, concise book that summarizes yoga philosophy. Right. And, right. and, and Vedanta theory, uh, philosophy very well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it has all those things. And when I uh, talk to people about it, um, one aspect of those that I mentioned usually uh, is singled out as why they like the book. And sometimes there's things they don't like about the book, but that somebody else finds the most compelling thing. Yeah. And what, what, one thing we haven't mentioned is the miracles. That's right. <laughs> I was going to get there. Yeah. Okay. I, no, I thought you would. So you go, no, go ahead. I'll yeah, so let you I was ask gonna, the I'm question. I just going to mention uh, the miracles. So Paramahansa Yogananda includes many stories in his book, The Autobiography of Yogi, about meeting various gurus and saints, some of whom are described as performing acts that are quite miraculous, including uh, manifesting a, a, another body, levitating, those sorts of things. And I know from conversations that I have had with others who have read the autobiography that sometimes those stories really present a stumbling block <laughs> and they toss it aside and can't even like finish the book. They don't even want to read the rest of the book because they are so skeptical that anything like that could happen. So what are your thoughts about why Yogananda uh, included those stories uh, about yeah. saints with miraculous uh, abilities? Uh, first, I want to say I, you're absolutely right. That's my experience as well. I, I often joke that there are two kinds of people who are fans of autobiography of a yogi. The people who are there because of the miracles and the you know stories of supernormal powers and all that, they love it, can't get enough. There's people who don't believe a word of that. They can't stand it. They're skeptical about it, even cynical about it. They you know, accuse Yogananda of putting it in there to just get attention yeah. or of being gullible. Um, but they love the book for all the other reasons. Yeah. You know, the, oh, just, you know, I just, I just gloss over those, you know, miracle stuff because I don't believe any of it. But I, but the philosophy and the, the you know, the rest of it, so what you're saying is, is there's two kinds of people, people who like it because of the miracles and people right. who like it in spite of the miracles. In spite of the miracles. <laughs> exactly right. And um, 
And I find that fascinating. Yeah. Now, why did he do it? Now, I had my own theories about why. Uh, for one thing, he was himself always, you see this in his life story, even as a kid. He, he was you know drawn to spiritual uh, teachings and a spiritual experience and so forth. But he really, he loved those, you know, stories of the powers of consciousness when when consciousness is to develop to its highest states as described in the yogic texts. And so he found it personally interesting. One thing people don't realize that I came across in my writing, in my research, was his original intent was to write a book about those great saints, the yogi Christs of India. Oh, wow. Yes, and he was gathering stories and and doing research, and he was going to write about these extraordinary uh, yogis and the the feats of consciousness that they uh, performed. And then he, but, you know, and, and people would say, why don't you write your own life story? So the book ends up being a kind of combination of those two uh, tasks that he yeah. took on for himself. I did uh, not realize that that was part of his original. That motivation. was, yeah, <laughs> before he thought of writing a, an autobiography, he was researching that. He was going to do a biography of Lahiri Mahasya, you know, and so it's all in this one book. And um, so when I was doing the, my research for my biography of him, I kept thinking, why did he do that? I even had a graduate student. I hired to count the number of miraculous stories in the book. And I forget the number. It was like 300 or something. It was a lot. You know, I don't know if it's quite that much, but it was a lot of stories. So I asked um, one of the uh, Self-Realization Fellowship uh, officials whom I was who was, you know, supporting my research. I said, why do you think he did it? And he said, well, you know, look right here. And it had I had glossed over it. If you look on the cover page, the title page of Autobiography of a Yogi, uh-huh. uh, that's inside the book, you know, like the first page or two, depending on your edition. It's the title and publisher at the bottom and all that there's a quote he quotes the bible except ye see signs and wonders ye will not believe john 448 mm-hmm. he said he tells you why right there wow and i said wow i didn't i just who reads i don't you don't read that page <laughs> and, but there it is and he he was essentially saying what uh, John in the New Testament says some people need signs and wonders. Right. Otherwise, it it, it gets their attention. Yeah. And and you know, there's a lot of precedent for that in India. There are there are a lot of yogis who will talk about these things and perform feats of you know what we think of as you know psychic ability and so forth to get your attention. And then what do they do? As Yogananda did. 
he'll tell you, don't take that stuff too seriously. Mm. Don't make it a goal to perform these things. Don't get obsessed by them. They're great stories. They're indications of what is possible. And they get your attention. But what really matters is the inner experience of the divine. And, and if that's what you need to get you on the path, fine. But don't get obsessed with them. Don't take his. You see the same thing in the Yoga Sutras. You see the same thing in Buddhas, in, in you know, stories about the Buddha. When he's asked if he performs miracles, he said, yes, I, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm thirsty, I drink. That's my miracle. Mm. And he says, I, there's indications that Buddha himself said, you know, I could do these things, but why should I? Right. You know, I'm here to teach you to, to, be, you know, to, to yeah. be liberated within yeah. yourself. Yeah. And so Yogananda did the very same thing in his teachings, but he really does highlight them in, in the book. And, you know, people love it or hate it, but um, he, I think he found it a useful teaching tool. Right, right. Oh, that's great. That was very helpful. As a reminder to our listeners, today on The Yoga Hour, my guest is author Philip Goldberg. Phil is the author of a couple of books that are relevant to our discussion today of uh, Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi. His books are American Veda and uh, Yogananda, uh, a biography of Yogananda, which you can see behind him right there on, <laughs> on his uh, bookcase. You see them both over each shoulder. <laughs> you can find out more about Phil and his books and programs at his website, philipgoldberg.com. And again, Philip is with one L. P-H-I-L-I-P, goldberg.com. And that link will be on our webpage at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Phil, in your book, you write uh, the, about the cornerstone of Yogananda's teachings being, and this is a little quote, the distinction between religious compliance and pragmatic adherence to methods known to advance spiritual development. Would you say more about this idea and why you think it was important, why that is the cornerstone of his teachings? Why do you Boy, say did that? I say that? You wow. did, yeah. And I think, it, I think it's, you're talking about the, that's actually on page four uh, of the life of Yogananda. Um, but the distinction, uh, I think, is between sort of blind, you know, adherence yeah. to some kind yeah. of a faith, you know, based practice and pragmatic adherence to methods that, you know, work from probably yeah. from your own actual experience on the meditation cushion. You know, when I researched American Veda um, and I had to chronicle the influence that um, all the teachings from India have had on uh, American life and American individuals. Um, and I've had to think about myself and my friends and, and you know, why did we adopt these methods? Why, why were we drawn to these teachings? And, it, you know, and, and I'm often asked why I think America was drawn to them. And I, I always come back to the fact that uh, we in the West, especially, and I think, you know, serious spiritual practitioners everywhere are uh, pragmatic people. Mm -hmm. If you're serious about your spiritual life, 
you you're drawn to and and uh, spend time with teachings that uh, inspire and uplift and inform your spiritual life in a, in a productive way. Ideas that hold up to experience and evidence, uh, methodologies, practices that improve your life, that uh, give you tastes at least of the experience of um, inner peace and oneness that yoga promises. Right. Um, and one of the hallmarks of all the teachers who came to the West from India who had any impact at all is they never asked you to convert to anything. Right. They didn't ask you to uh, take what they say on faith, uh, to you know sign on to a belief system. They said, here's what we've discovered yeah. in our tradition. Uh, here's how it might apply and, and uh, have value in your life. And here are these methods, meditation, and all the whole yogic repertoire. Try them. Integrate them into your life. See if the teachings hold up for you. And that non-coercive uh, emphasis on personal experience and personal validity over um, dogma mm -hmm. uh, and uh, being a, a true believer kind of thing, it was one of the things that made the, the, the teachings that came from the East whether in Buddhist form or Hinduish form, uh, appealing to us. It was like, okay, nobody's coercing me. Nobody's asking too much of me. Uh, they're acknowledging my independence and my agency. Yeah. And so when I say it was a cornerstone of Yogananda's work, I'm not saying that he was the only one. This is characteristic of, 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 of the core teachings that come from what we call the you know the yoga tradition and he exemplified that and coming when he did in the 1920s uh when exposure to these things was much more limited than it would be when i was you know discovering them um it was especially important for him to emphasize that i'm not asking you to change your religion I'm not asking you to adopt my religion. I'm not asking you to look at this as a uh, uh, a substitute for your own belief systems, your own values, your own traditions. I'm offering you these ideas and these methods to improve your life. Mm -hmm. It's practical teaching, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so uh, that's why I, I I I made I emphasize that. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I, I must say, that's one of the things about the yoga path that I really, really appreciate that you aren't asked to take things on faith, that it is an experiential path. That's and, right. And that you can validate, 
you know, there are things that you can read and then you can have experiences in meditation and you can actually experience the validity of them for yourself. And that's really the, that's right. that's really the focus. Do they work for you? Do they yes, not? Do they, they do can. what we say it will? You know, how do they hold up? Yeah. Oh, they not quite? Then try this method. Yeah. Try that method. <laughs> right. try that technique. There's a, there's a big repertoire. Um, and this is... Um, that attitude is very uh, congruent with science mm -hmm. right. and yes. the, the age of reason. You right. know, uh, for yeah. all the religious fanaticism in America and, you know, fundamentalism and everything, we're by and large products of the scientific age. Yeah. And so if something works, yeah. And the evidence is there, even if there's initial resistance and backlash and all that, eventually, any, if things work, people start accepting them. Yes. And, and that's what happens over time. Yeah. You know, and, and in the, you know, getting back to the autobiography of a yogi, he says that repeatedly. You see the respect for science mm -hmm. in the book. Right. Same respect for science that Vivekananda had before him, that the you know Dalai Lama has now, and all the gurus had. You know, this is scientific. You could think of this as a science of consciousness. Yes, there are certain yeah, hypotheses, even... and you could test them out yeah. in the laboratory of your own experience. Yes, yeah, and I must say again, that is such an appealing thing for me. In your book, you talk mm. about how Yogananda's name itself helped the idea of yoga become legitimized yeah. in the American psyche. So would you share more about that story about how Yogananda yeah, Lal Ghosh becomes Swami Yogananda Giri and yeah. the significance of that name in general, but in America in particular? Why was well, that important? I, you know, this is my own supposition. Uh, you know, when you think of the growth and acceptance of yoga mm -hmm. in all of its manifestations, and you think, you know, as I, you know, found in my research, if you go back 100 years, 110 years, you'll see nasty stuff in the newspapers and magazines about these terrible yogis who are hypnotizing American women and you know to have their way with them and this is dangerous and this is terrible and it's idol worship and it's the devil's work and all this stuff and you see you know jokes being made about yogis and fakirs and you know all this stuff over time now you know there's a yoga studio on every corner and and your healthcare provider tells you you should meditate and do yoga so okay. over time things change and it occurred to me that uh a yogananda's name you know because he he comes in 1920 as swami yogananda right. he's not yet known as paramahansa right. he's swami yogananda for you know 15 20 years he was mukundalal ghosh growing up then he takes his monastic vows. And uh, usually the guru who initiates you into a monastic order uh, get, assigns you a name, gives yeah. you a, a, a Swami name. 
most of which, if not all, end, end in ananda, which means bliss. And so, uh, but in Yogananda's case, uh, Sri Yukteswar said, why don't you choose your own name? Mm. And he chose Yogananda uh, because he saw himself as a yogi and felt that uh, uh, the word essentially means coming to the bliss of yogic uh, realization through yoga. Um, often names are given, monastic names are given in, in ways that sort of match the personality or the um, spiritual preferences of the individual. Uh, different lineages do it different ways. So he obviously must have, you know, identified strongly as a yogi in order and and took on the name yogananda and it occurred to me that between his name and the title of the book which has yogi in it mm-hmm. um that you know what goes a long way toward getting people accustomed to the word and what it means and and wondering about it so if you read autobiography you read why he chose that name you read what yoga is in its deepest sense. You know, uh, these days people think of yoga as a physical exercise, but um, all the you know, we all know, and your listeners know, there's a whole lot more to it. And so I think his name and presence in in America for you know. 32 years, essentially, before there were a whole lot of people, not even, not to mention that there were very few swamis, there were some, uh, and very few yoga masters, they came and went. He was here for three decades, Mm -hmm. at a time when, you know, now there's so many people of Indian descent in America, you know, citizens who, you know, uh, came here as immigrants, or who's Parents and grandparents came as immigrants who were used to the present. But when he was, you know, in the 20s and 30s, there were very few Indian people, let alone people with long hair and orange clothing. Um, And so uh, his growth, his assimilation into American life, the familiarity that people acquired about India and Indian, what India had to offer us, through his presence in America, was aided by his name, I think, you know, the acceptance. The t- degree to which he was accepted, then yoga was also accepted. Mm-hmm. And what he taught was accepted. So that's my theory. No, that's interesting. <laughs> because as you point out in American Veda, it is such a common word now. I mean, everybody <laughs> everybody knows yoga. Yeah, <clears throat> Although, even if they misuse it and trivialize well, right. it. But they well, well it. just think of it in a much more limited way. You know, just yeah. think about it as just a purely physical practice that, you know, they see in the uh, pretzel poses on the front of magazines in the line at the grocery store. But I often wondered, <clears throat> just, you know, be, you know, Yogananda passed in 1952. He... His the last few years of his life would have overlapped the first few years of the life of Yogi Berra, the baseball player. <laughs> and they often, every once in a while, I wonder: Did anybody, you know, connect those two things? 
<laughs> it's deja vu all over again, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't exactly. Right. <laughs> My favorite Yogi Berra quote: "Deja vu all over again." Yeah, and and, and every well, you know, you see, there's a certain wisdom in some of those Yogi Berra things that would have amused Yogananda yeah. if someone said uh, to Yogananda. Uh, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> that's right. He might have found some deep meaning in that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. That's great. So I've already <laughs> mentioned in your book, um, The Life of Yogananda, you share a lot more detail about Yogananda's life in America, which is, as yeah. we've already mentioned, glossed over kind of in, uh, in with a few exceptions in in Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi. So what do you think, as from your much deeper understanding of what happened, what do you what do you find most relevant or interesting? Or maybe what do you want people to understand about Yogananda's life in America that he didn't share in his autobiography? One thing we'll never know is why he chose to leave so much out. Right. You know, um, and, and we'll just never know. But take, for example, those four years in Boston when he first comes here. Right. I kept thinking, what was it like? I've lived in Boston. I moved to Boston in the late 60s from New York City. And that was a bit of a culture shock for me. And I thought, well, what was it like coming from Calcutta in 1920? What was his first winter like? You know, <laughs> yeah. I actually, I actually looked into what was the what's the average temperature on Christmas Day yeah. in Boston versus Calcutta, and there's like a forty or fifty degree difference. What would it have been like? What was it like to walk on the streets uh, at a at a time when when he arrived, women were about to vote for the first time. I mean, that's how long ago it was. Irish people and Jews were being, you know, harassed and discriminated against on the streets of Boston, not, not to mention black people. And here is this dark-skinned guy with long hair. And strange, you know, how did, how, what was that like? What did he... And not just... Was, not just the long hair, but I've seen a little uh, video clip of him walking along the streets that yeah. I think is from that period in his, I mean, he wore the full the you know, tunic get up and the, you know, he yeah. had a turban Actually, on. Actually, that, that clip is in the streets of New York and it's in the 30s. So he's yeah. already here for 10 or 15 years at that time. But he learned very quickly. Usually when he was out in public, he wore Western clothing. Yeah. And he tucked his hair under his collar to mm -hmm. avoid you know, that sort of thing. But when he was in a teaching position, all that, he was traditional in his uh, appearance. But that tells you a lot that he, you know, to avoid harassment and stuff, he he, he assimilated in his clothing. You see pictures of him in, in suits and, you know, you know, American style men's suits. Um, so what, what was it like? So those details. And how did he get his whole... Uh, a teaching agenda off the ground. In my experience researching American Veda, all the teachers who came here, you know, they started out totally unknown, giving talks in people's living rooms. And so did he. 
you know, he came here to speak at a conference and then he was invited to speak at a church and people said, oh, come to my salon and my living room. And there were 10 people or 15 people. And then within a few years, he was filling Symphony Hall and Carnegie Hall and, you know, all that. How did that happen? Who, who supported him? Who advised him? Who paid the bills? You know, how did they, you know, and all those, those details were, to me, terribly important. Right. How did he learn to reach Americans, you know, and uh, how did he come to understand what they might be looking for? And you could see that in how the titles of his public talks would change over time. You could see that, oh, he's learning how to reach Americans, what they might be attracted to and so forth. Um, why did he go, you know, go to Los Angeles and make, you know, LA his home? How did that happen? All those things were terribly important to me, but the thing I came away with most was, you know, we have a tendency to, um, make holy teachers, you know, high level spiritual teachers into, perfect beings, godlike figures, uh, but they're still human. And, and I think it's very useful for us to, to see the human side. Right. And to, to see that Yogananda had a lot of struggles. It wasn't easy to accomplish what he did. It wasn't easy to run an organization and grow an organization of, you know, when you're reliant on volunteer help and, uh, when you're, you know, you're you're teaching something and representing something that people are going to, f many people will find threatening, and many people will, would oppose, and many people will, you know, try to uh, bring down. Uh, you got to pay the bills, and you know, ten years after he came here, we were in the midst of the Great Depression. Right. How, you know what happened then? How come it didn't fall apart? How did, you know, businesses were failing, high level, brilliant businessmen were, you know, losing their fortunes. How did he keep the spiritual nonprofit afloat? How did that happen? He worried about money a great deal. He had to deal with, you know, imperfect human beings who, you know, lived in his ashrams and were working for him and who uh, made mistakes and had squabbles among themselves there were people trying to bring him down uh, planting stories about him there were front page uh there were lawsuits there were all kinds of problems that he had to deal with and there were you know on record there were times when he felt you know i don't need this i'm just going to go back to india and live a simple life of a of a monk which is what i set out to do but i have this mission now and i so I'm sticking around. I'll 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 stick it out. And and that made him those human qualities and the human struggles. I think are very useful for us to know, um, because if I had many people email me after they read my biography of Yogananda, saying it was so good to learn that he had struggles and he had to overcome obstacles, and because it it makes me feel that I'm a that 
I feel better about the struggles in my life and the human ups and downs in my life as a spiritual person, knowing that even he had to deal with stuff. Right. And look and how he dealt with it with grace and dignity and you know remaining true to his path. That's inspiring to me. And so I I I I found that in discovering it myself very useful. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I, I run into people all the time who says, Oh, you know, I've been on my spiritual path for 30 years and I'm having uh, this problem with these people, and I, you know, I have uh, financial issues. I said, So did Yogananda. He was worried about, you know, the future financial help of his organization, you know, right up till the last days of his life. And he too had physical ailments uh, and thing, you know. So, you know, we're in bodies, <laughs> and, and we and we're in society, and right. and and it, it, it's very useful to know mm-hmm. that you know the the great people we look up to, the masters, they too had human stories to tell. Yeah, it's interesting as I hear you talking about it. I almost wonder if maybe he just wasn't it, it wasn't too close, you know, for him to write about at the time. You know, his his struggles. So he chose to focus on these other more uplifting, you know, these uplifting yeah. stories and not yeah, I think so. all of the, you know, all of the issues that he was really facing on a day-to-day basis. It's, it's actually it, really he didn't shy away from, in the autobiography, he doesn't shy away from them entirely. Mm-hmm. But there was so much more to be said. And I think it's, a, you know, it's a question of, you know, why should I bother? I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. Right. But he does talk about the challenges, uh, you know, and the financial challenges of running an organization and all that. Uh, it, it does come up, but you know, he wasn't going to write about the lawsuits, right? Or you know, the, the people who betrayed him, the people who you know tried to bring him down, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I it, it would have sounded like you know, I think he was taking the high road. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and. Yeah. I can, that's understandable. So you get, you know, people like me come along to tell the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And it is such a great, your book, The Life of Yogananda is such a great companion to the autobiography of a yogi. It adds so much. So unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time together. I wanted to give you the last couple of, of minutes to talk about any words of inspiration or encouragement you'd like to leave with our listeners. Well, I would. Uh, I, I appreciate your saying my my book is a good complement to Autobiography of a Yogi. So I think everybody who's ever read Autobiography of a Yogi should buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. I think it's great, and it does paint him as a more you know as a more uh, human uh, figure. But uh, no, I would also say that go back. If, if you've read Autobiography of the Yogi, it's influential in your life. Go back some time and reread it. Read it slowly, carefully. If you want to take the, my course the next time I teach it at Hindu University of America, I'm teaching a course more like American Veda coming up in, in July. But, um, you know, make it a study group, a book for your book group or whatever, you'll, you, there's always new things to discover in it mm-hmm. uh, because you, there's just so much richness. Mm-hmm. And um, 
if you're curious, read my book and, and discover, you know, more of Yogananda's story and the human story. And I think you will find that uh, inspirational. I think the lives of great people are always inspirational. It's why we love biographies and, you know, movies based on the lives of uh, important human beings. And, and, uh, and he's one of them. And so I would encourage people to, to learn from it and imbibe the lessons into your own spiritual path. Mm -hmm. In fact, it is uh, such an important practice that it is one of the key practices of Kriya Yoga. It's included in the self-study, which is also the study of uh, sacred scriptures and study of the lives of, of saints and other holy people. So I would totally agree with you. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been author Philip Goldberg, who also hosts the Spirit Matters podcasts, which you can find at mindbodyspirit.fm. Phil's website is philipgoldberg.com, where you can find out more about Phil and his books. We will have this link on our webpage at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Phil Goldberg, for joining me today on The Yoga Hour. It was a great pleasure, Laurel. Always good to see you and be with you. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the sponsor of this program, the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. There's daily morning meditation at 6.30 a.m. Pacific, in the afternoon at 4 p.m., and in the evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also Sunday satsang. Satsang is a Sanskrit word that means a gathering of truth seekers that happens at 10 a.m. Pacific time on Sundays each week. There is an upcoming Kriya Yoga Meditation Retreat with Yogacharya O'Brien, which will occur June 22nd to 25th. That's both in person at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. It's also online. It's open to everyone. Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien also has another podcast that might be of interest. It's called Kriya Yoga Today. You can find out more about the many classes and events at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment by going to the website csecenter.org. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I'm delighted that I will be joined by Andrew Mellon, best-selling author and host of the podcast Declutter Your Life. We will be discussing cutting-edge neuroscience and common-sense ways to change the way we think and act about time, bringing us into the present moment with clear intention gratitude, and abundance. The Yoga Hour is a service project for the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now.